Genesis 17, we'll read 14 verses there, and then flip over to Acts 2 for three selections, or Acts for three selections, 1 and 2, and 2 and 16. One of the promises that was just read or rehearsed in our baptismal service just now is contained in this chapter, Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. Maybe you remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham... And then in Genesis 15, you have God's covenant with Abraham solidified uh, with a ceremony. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And then in 17, you're given the actual sign of the covenant. We'll read that now. Verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations from you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child shall be among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man shall be cut off from his people. For he has broken my covenant. Amen. And then flip to Acts chapter 2. We'll read two verses there. And then we'll flip to Acts 16 for just a few verses there. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. This is the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Acts 2, 38 and 39 says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. 
And then flip over to Acts 16, starting at verse 13. This is the account of uh, Lydia, and then also the account of the Philippian jailer. Start at verse 13, says, On the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who were meeting there. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. And then go to verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his own sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. He then called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. Amen. Pop quiz. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? I would guarantee you that I could ask 10 older saints in this room and 10 younger saints in this room that question, and we would probably get 20 answers. Covenant is very complicated to define. Did you know that the Bible uses the word covenant over 300 times? To describe the way in which God relates to his people. One writer points it out and says, God enters into, he remembers, and he renews his covenant with his people. He goes on further, the people for their part must not break the covenant, but remember and renew their covenant with God. Children, listen to how many different things there are about covenants in the Bible. There are covenant-making rituals. There are covenant documents. There are covenant laws. There are covenant meals. There are covenant mediators. There are covenant sacrifices. There are covenant memorials. 
There are covenant promises. There are covenant curses. There are covenant witnesses. And there may even be more. Nevertheless, this writer says, a good many Christians, even lifelong Presbyterians who love to use the word covenant, are often mystified by the concept of covenant. We denominate our churches and schools with this word covenant. But when asked to define it, our words often fail us. Close quote. I'm not going to offer any definitive definition of covenant because I feel myself at times just as unable to do so, to, unable to offer a definition as that author highlights. Could you describe a covenant as a relationship? It is a type of relationship, but even if you're not in covenant with God, you have a relationship to Him as your Creator, right? But you're not technically in covenant with Him in the way that we're talking about. Marriage is a good image for covenant. People don't call it a marriage contract or a marriage arrangement. We tend to call it, especially Christians, a marriage covenant. Genesis 17, it is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and it is all about God's covenant. Abraham, he serves as a figurehead or an example for all who would follow in his footsteps. That's one of the reasons he's marked out as Father Abraham. He precedes all of us. Paul even says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul, therefore, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, views Christians as the seed, the descendants, the offspring, the children of Abraham. We are part of this great family that God promised to Abraham. And God fulfilled His promise. But what kind of promise was it? It was a covenant promise. Verses 2 and 4 in Genesis 17. We have God saying, I will make my covenant with you. And then in verse 4, my covenant is with you. And the promise, here it is, you shall be a father of many nations. That's when he's speaking just directly to Abraham. You have a covenant and you have a promise right beside it. Therefore, you have a covenant promise. Right? That's probably another phrase that we could throw around. So, you know, people that can't really explain pedo baptism that well, infant baptism, the baptism of the children of believers, they'll say something like, you know, if they know a little bit of their Bible, well, we baptize because the covenant promises. Okay? What does that mean? Let's think about it for a moment. It's a promise, very simple, made to those in the covenant. Right? But what are those promises? What are those promises? Maybe you know promises. Maybe you noticed in the second baptismal vow that the parents. Colton Lindsay just claimed these. The parents claim God's covenant promises on behalf of the child. If your child was baptized in this church, you did the same thing. And they promise, parents promise to look in faith to Christ for the salvation of their child just as they look to Christ for their own. I use the phrase covenant promise talking about Abraham, and there it appears in our own baptismal vows. Covenant promise. 
The parents are claiming something like what was offered to Abraham when someone is added to the covenant, as happened with Garner this morning. There are necessary things that we ought to do in order to frame our hearts and minds toward what the Lord wants us to see. I'm going to talk about four things for just a moment from Genesis 17. The things that I think God would like for us to see this morning. Of course, you could make a longer list, I'm sure. But here's four. The first thing in Genesis 17 is God's freedom. God's freedom. The language that he uses towards Abraham is not interrogative. It's not questions. It's imperative. Commands. Promises. Statements. When Abraham was 99 years old, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram, and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. He doesn't say you should. He doesn't say you may. You must, for you are in covenant with me. I have brought you to myself, is the idea. God is free in saying these things. He chose Abraham. He brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. You can read the end of Genesis 11 and beginning of Genesis 12 to see that. Many argue that Abram was worshiping the moon before God called him into covenant with him. The people of that region were known to be moon worshipers. And God freely called him and no other family that is mentioned in Genesis at that point. He doesn't say he called these five families from these different regions. It says he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. So God's freedom is the first thing. The second thing is God does not ask permission. And the people I'm talking about is, is those who are under Abraham. Do you notice that God did not run around to Sarah and ask if she wanted to be in covenant with God? He didn't go over to the children or the servants and say, do you want to be in covenant with God? He said, you, Abram, are in covenant with me, as are your children and your whole household. By implication, including all the servants and Abraham's wife is, of course, assumed. God did not ask permission. This wasn't an altar call. The third thing. God gave a sign to eighth-day males, or to boys who were eight days old. Now, let me, t- let me begin to tie it to baptism here for just a moment. But think about it like this. If you object to baptism for infants because they can't understand it, then you must also apply the same logic to circumcision. Because they can't understand it. They feel the pain, but they don't remember. Right? The logic must work both ways. If your objection to infant baptism is, well, they won't be able to remember it. They can't understand it. Then that same objection must apply to circumcision as well. Why would God circumcise them if they're not going to remember it? God calls His people in the prophets to circumcise their own hearts. This event that would normally be performed on infants had implications for their whole life, indeed for all the people and the women included, even though they weren't circumcised. How could they understand it? 
if they couldn't remember it. Seems that God didn't worry about that. Neither does he worry about an infant child not being able to remember cognitively their baptism. The fourth thing, God's return. One way we could phrase this as what God gets out of this covenant relationship. Because you notice Abraham has promised an awful lot. And a covenant, it works two ways, right? There, is two, there are always at least two parties in a covenant. There is normally a superior and an inferior. Sometimes covenants are made between equals. But there's always promises, curses, blessings, warnings, all these things. And God fills this covenant with promises. I will be your God. I will be your descendants' God. I will make you a father of great nations. But what does God get? Verse 8 says, I will be their God. And verse 7 says, I will be a God to you and to your father or to your children. What does God get? Well, he gets to be the God of his people. Don't romanticize that. That's not, I'm not trying to make you feel some kind of weird way. What I want you to do is to think about God's satisfaction in himself and lack of need to do this. Abraham needed God in this covenant. God did not need Abraham. The ultimate aim of God's covenant with his people is not benefits for him. Yes, glory for him. But if you know anything about glory and about God, you know that it doesn't add anything to God. It just gives him what he already rightly deserves. Does Abraham deserve what he gets promised in the covenant? No. Everything is added to Abraham. And God is simply delighted to be his God and the God of his children after him. God does not make covenant with us for his sake. He does it for ours, for our sake. I've said covenant promise several times. I want us to focus on one particular promise in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, My covenant between me... I'm going to read it from the King James because it... it uh, highlights the singular nature of the pronoun. My covenant is between me and thee, speaking directly to Abram, and thy seed, Abraham's seed or descendants after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant. This is one of the promises that is being claimed today. Notice, it has at least two objects, right? Abram and his seed, Abraham and his children, right? We just baptized a child of Abraham who belongs to children of Abraham. And in the baptismal vows, we claim and we petition God to be faithful to his own word, to keep us in his ways, and to do the very same for our own children because he makes covenant with us and with our children. He promised to be a God to you, Christian, but he also promised, if you have children, to be a God to your children after you. Notice how that never ends. 
so long as the conditions of the covenant are met. You think about it like this. Abraham is the original, uh, the you, the original the, the singular person. God made the covenant with Abraham and also with the descendants of Abraham. Well, that line is going to move, right? Abraham's going to die and the descendants become the you and then new descendants rise up. God continues to fulfill the covenant in that way. The seed one day becomes the, the thou or the you, the singular. The seed participates in the promises made to Abraham as the seed first, and then the seed takes the place of Abraham when they have their own seed or children. And something that, that must be stated is that both covenants, the old one and the new one, we're going to get to the new one a little bit more in just a second, the old one and the new one both have covenant signs. The sign is so bound up with the covenant that in Genesis 17, God says circumcision is the covenant. Same thing for baptism. Baptism is the covenant. It is the beginning of the covenant relationship. And if you notice the difference between those two signs, covenant sign uh, in circumcision, very bloody, very painful. Covenant sign in baptism... No pain, just washing. They both point to a type of washing, a type of cleansing. That's very obvious. What happened between those two to cause the new sign to not only be bloodless, but able to be given to both boys and girls? The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened between those two signs. It fulfilled the old one and pointed to the new one. There are other promises made in our text. Those are other sermons. But think for just a moment of some of the implications of God being a God to you and to your seed after you. If you don't have seed yet, think about your parents or think about your desire to be a parent, whatever the case may be. God promised to make Abraham a father of great nations a father of many nations, he promised to make a covenant with him and his seed after him before Ishmael or Isaac was born. God did not wait for Ishmael and Isaac to be born and then offer the covenant to them. He claimed them before they took their first breath. He didn't ask permission. He declared Abraham and Sarah's offspring as his own. So children, same for you. Your parents are believers before you were ever a blip on anybody's mind. You were a blip, let's say, on the mind of God, and He looked forward to the time in which you would be born and you would be brought into His covenant, just as He did, especially with Isaac. Ishmael's debated. There's difficulty there. Some people say he was in the covenant but unfaithful. Some say he was never part of the covenant. The text kind of speaks both ways. It's hard to say for sure. But this idea that God covenants with people uh, before they're born because their parents are Christian, or He covenants with people without their permission because they're under the influence of a Christian uh, father or mother or both. You saw in Lydia that even if it's the woman that becomes a believer, Lydia maybe was married and her husband had died. There was a lot of uh, wars going on in the first century that... Um, men who were Jewish or um, men who were uh, 
from, from the various areas around the people, would, they would have wars, and women were very often widows. She could have been a widow, or she could have been just a single woman who never had children. Whatever it was, she was the one who believed, and then the text tells us that her whole household was baptized after her. They showed that God still is working this way in the covenant, that he includes households. It carries on into the New Testament. In Colossians 2, baptism and circumcision are compared in such a way that baptism is called the circumcision of Christ. Many have used this to show that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of entry into the covenant. And if you were to go back and read through the relevant Old Testament passages, you would see circumcision is given at eight days of age to the young boys who were born to those who are already in covenant with God. But you would also see circumcision being performed on those who sought to join themselves to the Lord from outside the covenant. That would be examples of infant circumcision and adult circumcision. And if baptism replaces circumcision and the covenant has the same avenue of membership as before, then you would expect in the pages of the New Testament to begin to see households being baptized where infants were logically included and adults being baptized. And that is indeed what you find in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, one of the verses we read, he says, The promise is to you and to your children. And then to anyone else who the Lord may call. He still has that covenant relationship. Peter sounding very Old Testament-y. Acts 16.15, again, Lydia. When she was baptized, so was her household. What did Paul say to the Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will, you will be saved, you and your house. Then the whole house is baptized. Therefore... It is the case that children born to Christian parents have a special status before God and in Christ. And one of the ways we describe that relationship or that status is being in covenant with God. So how then should we treat these children? How should we treat children of the covenant? Or children, how should you think of yourself in light of being in covenant with God. Here's one quote. Baptized children are to be taught and trained to believe, to feel, to act, and to live as becomes those who are the Lord's. Now listen to this qualification right here. Not simply that it is wrong and perilous to be and do otherwise, but that such a course is inconsistent with their position as members of the church, placed in it by the mercies of God. Close quote. Let me explain that a little further. Baptized children are those who should be taught and are required to be taught that they are in covenant with God, not that, that, that they're awaiting to be in covenant with God. You know, some people, the way that they would instruct their children, it's almost like 
there's no special burden upon them to believe. It's almost like they are just more or less an unbeliever. They got wet when they were younger. That is not how the Bible talks about people in covenant with him. You are either in covenant or you are not. And those who are in covenant with God, there are believers, there are unbelievers in the fold. But those who are out of covenant with God, all are unbelievers. But in Christ, in, uh, in covenant with God, as the scriptures would describe it, you don't simply say that it's wrong and, and sinful to be an unbeliever. It is inconsistent. It is a rejection of God's sovereignty. Because he placed you in the family that he placed you. You're not simply an unbeliever if you reject Christ and you're born in a Christian home. You're one of those people that Christ warned about. To whom much is given, much will be required. Imagine facing that on the last day. You were given that special pride of place. And you said, no thanks. You won't get treated like the people who have never heard the gospel. You won't get treated like those who, you know, only heard the gospel from a street preacher or a tract that somebody gave them at a restaurant or whatever the case may be. Baptized children are to be taught and trained to live as they be- if they belong to the Lord because they do. And any other thinking is inconsistent and a rejection of the Lord. Think about it like this. How much would it fix our child rearing if we embrace the idea, the truth, that Christianity is not a choice that we hope our children will make in the future, but instead an obligation and tremendous privilege laid on them from their birth. Think of how that would radicalize it. Well, I hope they believe one day. Wrong. Wrong thinking. Too passive. Too dismissive of God. If you are born in covenant with God, you are obligated to serve Him. You are loved by Him. And placed in that tremendous privilege of a Christian environment. It would fix our child rearing if we embrace that idea. So I ask you, as we'll close in prayer, that you would join me, not just in the prayer that I'm about to offer, but throughout the week. Pray for yourself if you still have children in the home. Pray for your children if they have children in the home. Pray for your own children. That God the Father, through His Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit, that He would grant us the grace of repentance that is required to view ourselves and our children how God views them and to live accordingly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we confess that of the things that we are so often to forget, your promises are near the very top of the list. We ask that you would have mercy upon us, 
for forgetting, more or less trying to forfeit the promises that you place upon us and our children. Please renew us according to the truth. Please help us to serve, to pray, and to live before those who have children in a way that is faithful. Lord, for our older saints whose children are all grown, teach them through your word to plead the promises. God, we are unworthy servants who are simply seeking to do our duty. And we know how it is to be a parent to children. Help us to understand your love for us so that we might communicate it to them even better. That love which we call covenant. We pray it with the prayer Christ has taught us to pray. Our Father...